everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 49, Linux, Live CDs, and VMs, oh my, recorded April 22nd, 2012, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. This week, we're going to cover a couple of different uh, things brought up by listeners. Uh, we're going to talk about live CDs and uh, virtual machines, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. But first, let me introduce our regular panel of hosts, uh, starting with Mr. Seth Anderson, the Gooey Kid. Hello, Seth. Hey, Mark. Hello, Everyday Linux Nation. <laughs> we're a nation now, are we? Wow. That's cool. It can't I, hurt. Wishful thinking, at least. <laughs> and also with us this week is the... Uh, Former fat guy back with us, the noob in residence, Mr. Aaron Butler. Didn't have a Hello. dinner party tonight, apparently. Hey, Aaron. Hello. Hello. Didn't have a what? Was that? Dinner party. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just to everybody out there listening, I sent a, a sincere apology letter to all three guys, of which none replied. Replied. They just left me hanging. Yeah. yeah. Doing in my own bacon juices all week about how lowly I felt. It, it wasn't I didn't a get dinner a party. We, just, we went out to dinner with some friends and went over to their house and just didn't. I didn't really know what time we went to dinner. Didn't have no any idea what time it was. And all of a sudden, I looked at the clock and I was like, I should be recording a podcast right now. Oops. <laughs> Chat room, does that sound like a cop out or what? It's the truth is what it is. It's not an excuse. It's a fact. Yeah. I make no excuses for it. I totally forgot. Didn't realize what time it was. So he sent us an email looking for some sort of absolution and we gave him none. Actually, just <laughs> acknowledging it would have been fine. Even a a, 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 a violent censure of words would have been okay. But just uh, just an email received, at least, right? You're dead to me. That's all I got. I got the email equivalent of you're dead to me. Crickets. And also, the command line godfather, whose command line foo has broken his camera, so we just get to look at his face. Mr. Chris Neves. Hey, Chris. Hey, everyone. How's it tonight? Good, good, good. I think in honor of Chris's picture, we should all do the whole show like this. That's not a bad idea. Just kick back, <laughs> relax. All right. So uh, I love the way this show often comes together. Uh, we up until at about 6.30 or so my time, we start the show at 8 my time. Uh, we had no show at all. And Seth sent uh, an email link. Uh, to, uh, to an article and we thought hey that's interesting and it fits really nicely with this thing and i sent an email and like 15 minutes later we had so many notes that we're probably going to actually have to cut things back because it's going to be too long a show if we do it all so uh, i love it when that when that when a plan comes together as hannibal would say uh, but first i have to mention something that was brought to me by so many people it's almost embarrassing no it's not almost it's entirely embarrassing how many people sent me this link um and I'm sure you've all seen it now. It's the ultimate bacon burger. The the ultimate um, <laughs> the ultimate bacon whopper. Apparently, in Japan, they're having a uh, um, uh, what's the word promotion where you can get five strips of bacon for roughly a buck. Uh, the the American equivalent of about a dollar. Uh, so. Some guy on a blog said, uh, "Let me do three bucks worth of bacon. Fifteen strips of bacon." And somebody else said, I can beat that. We'll do 105 strips of bacon. And then the next day, the same guy that did 105 said, no, no, let's really ramp this up. Let's do 1,050 strips of bacon. So uh, he got himself a Whopper with 1,050 strips of bacon. There's a nice video of it on YouTube that shows him tearing into it and trying to eat it and barfing. Actually, you don't actually see the barfing, but you see him uh, rather hurriedly move to the bathroom People, uh, the cameraman is trying to ask him questions. <laughs> He's clearly unable to speak. Um, and then they come back and three other people help him finish it. But this bacon monstrosity was sent to me on Facebook, on Twitter, in emails, in the forums uh, at the elementop.com website. Uh, and a couple of people mentioned it to me live. No less than about 15 different people brought this to my attention. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, favorite yourself up as the bacon guru mark what do you right. expect my favorite was uh, a post i saw on the initial story i read it's like the fool doesn't he realize how many calories are in mayonnaise that was awesome that was funny yeah, yeah. I laughed, but, yeah. now now i like bacon I, I think we've all established that but it's just it was just embarrassing how many people said oh you would love this story this is great you have you heard about this 
Um, and was anybody even, say, "Have you had one of these?" No, nobody. <laughs> nobody that some people said, uh, "Wouldn't wouldn't you like one of those?" Um, and the thing is, two and a half feet tall. It is massive. It is it is a bacon monstrosity. It's it's Frankenstein's bacon monster. It would get to the point where your mouth would be just so coated with fat that you wouldn't actually be able to taste it. Right. I mean, and I don't think anybody could eat that without throwing up. I don't think the human body could process yeah. that much fat in one sitting. You're, uh, you're, but it'd be you're, nice uh, to try. You, what would happen is your gallbladder would just quit your body. <laughs> I just, I'm out of <laughs> it here. It would just leave your body through the nearest orifice. <laughs> but what happens if you don't have a gallbladder? Well, then, then you're in happens? real trouble. <laughs> so it's just I'm out of here. I quit. Take yep. this job and shove it. So that's what we should call this: gallbladder reports. Take this job and shove it. So while we're on the topic of food, one of my favorite shows on the Food Network, and one of their favorite shows lately because they're showing it 700 times a week, is Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives, where All a fellow that. by the name of Guy Fieri goes around uh, the country and finds these funky little places. Um, and when I was in Austin this week for uh, business. And while I was there, I had remembered he had been, been there a couple of times. So I looked up diners, drives and drive-ins and dives in Austin. And uh, one of the places he'd been to was the Magnolia Cafe. And I found out after the fact, there are actually two Magnolia Cafes. There's the original and a, an, a, a, an expansion location. And I had gone to the expansion location. So I'm going to uh, modify my statements by saying that I went to the second one. But I was there and I was expecting this really great food because he was going on and on about it. And what I got was... Uh, Bland tomato sauce, soggy spaghetti, and a mediocre meatball. And I just thought, you know, Guy Fieri, you let me down. It was supposed to be this awesome place. And I went, and it was just not good. Well, so know, disappointing. Um, I've been to a couple of the places he's, that he's mentioned, too. One of the ones that I've been to is here in Atlanta. It's called the Varsity. And it's, the, it's touted as one of the world's largest um, uh, car hop places. And it's right next to the campus of Georgia Tech. And on it can seat 800 and park 600 cars. And on a game day, they'll serve something like 28,000 burgers. Uh, wow, they, a lot of burgers. They do 2,500 pounds of potatoes daily. And uh, it's, it's quite the experience to go there. And they have this whole stick that they do. What do you have? What do you have? What do you have? When you walk in. And Mark, you probably remember Nipsey Russell. Yes. Nipsey Russell was actually a car hop at the varsity. And his That's little awesome. kind of his stick is almost like the varsity esque. And they have this whole slang of rings and strings and naked dogs and all, you know, this way that you order things. And it's, it's, it's been around for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And it's pretty neat. If you come to Atlanta, the food's good. It's, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's, it's drive-in diner food, but it's, uh, it's an experience. You got to go to the varsity. Don't leave your valuables in the car. <laughs> all right. So that's, those are my two food offerings for the week. The ultimate bacon burger and Guy Fieri let me down. Chris. We haven't. I was thinking we have another food item in the warm-up. We do. Uh, we do. We have another bacon item in the in the warm-up. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Bacon part D. Today was my first day at the gym. I have officially started my new workout with my personal trainer, and he is trying to drill me into the ground. So from now on, if you guys see me all of a sudden nod off and just kind of pass out, it's because it's the after effects of the workout this morning. <laughs> Well, we won't see that since your camera's not working, so uh, we'll just have to... Very true. Try. If you hear snoring, we'll know why. I, <laughs> I'm convinced that uh, personal trainers are the second meanest people on the planet, physical therapists being the first. <laughs> I would meanest. agree with that. Followed by what, Aaron? Dentists. Dentists. Yeah, you ought to be a dentist. <laughs> people will pay you for causing them pain. One of my favorite moments from Little Shop of Horrors. So anyway... Uh, Dentist, physical therapist. Uh, what else did you do, uh, Chris? Uh, other than working out at the gym, you did something else <laughs> not healthy. Yeah, yeah. We went up to Subway and had ourselves a little protein bump, uh, flatbread and bacon, egg and cheese and such. Um, and I made the funny comment that saying, you know, bacon really isn't a protein. It's more like candy protein. It's kind of protein, but it's not really good for you. So it's candy protein. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the protein part of bacon is good. It's all the fat that goes with it. I have a friend of mine who calls it meat candy. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, she tells her kids, you got to treat that just like you do candy. It's a sometimes food. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. All right. And the next thing, Aaron. I just thought I would let you, you know. How you sleeping? <laughs> yeah. How you sleeping? I, uh, my, I'm a new homeowner as of Friday. Actually, it's not a new home. If, I had a new, if it was a new home, I wouldn't have this problem. It's a 20-year-old home. And uh, one of the, it has two air conditioning units, and one of the blowers went out. 
So a friend of mine and I got up in the attic and, and it, it was actually not out. It was running all the time. We did all the testing on the panel and everything. And okay, the, even talking to the people online and the control board, it sounds like the control board's bad. So I went and bought another control board, went up there by myself, installed it all, turned it on, and it had a different problem. Instead of being the low speed blow, it was kind of doing this. And I was like, but at that point, I was frustrated. I was hot. I just walked away. I just, I just said, I just walked away. I shut the power off and walked away. So I was back over there today. I went up and said, I'm going to take one more look at it. I had the exact identical board on another unit right behind me. So I, I looked, compared, looked, compared, looked, compared, looked, compared. And I had one of the six thermostat wires in the wrong place. That would do it. Moved it. Bing. Fixed it. I was very happy. It's amazing how quick something like that could be fixed. And it doesn't run Linux. 82% is not good enough sometimes. Yeah. Was that good math? Yeah. One out of six, 18, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Jim in the chat room says on, on the new house, congratulations or condolences. Big one. Yeah. Uh, I told my wife on the way home from the house this afternoon, I said, do you have a tourniquet? And she said, a tourniquet? I said, yes, I'm bleeding money. Yes, we are bleeding. Yeah, but when we bought the house that we're in right now, literally the day after we moved in, we had to have a plumber come out and replace the entire main sewer line. Oh, no. That's yeah. horrible. Yeah. Uh, we, and it was, you know, the, the previous owner said, well, it always worked fine for us. Uh, okay. Why not? Yeah. The, the thing is, is we've done exactly what I told every, always told everybody not to do, which is make sure you have plenty of cushion left over after you buy your house. Right. But the problem is, is we were ready to buy and our lease was up and we ended up buying a few things that we weren't planning on buying like all of the appliances. And so our cushion has been cushed. <laughs> yes. You had a cushion and it now is. it's a whoopee cushion. Yeah. So we're just, it'll, it'll be a tight few months till about September. And then we have some relief in the form of the last of our debt being paid off. And uh, so that'll be like a, uh, that'll be a, a bright sunny day. That's an awesome thing. Getting out of debt. I remember yes. when we hit that moment where other than the mortgage, we were totally debt free and it was like, wow. I have money. Did you know I made money? I didn't know I made money. I thought <laughs> yeah. I just made stuff to give to other people. Yeah, when when we pay off our last payment of debt, it'll be the equivalent of getting a fifteen thousand dollar a year raise. <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah. In one day. So we're looking forward to that. Okay, so uh, on to the Linux news. Uh, Seth put one in here that I liked. I liked the way he did. You, was this your headline or or the article, Seth? That was my headline. Okay, no more Picasa for Linux, but will anyone notice? Yeah, the uh, gist of this story is uh, Google announced on their blog that they will no longer um, maintain the Linux version of Picasa. The version that's out there, you know, it will it'll still work. They just aren't going to be supporting it, upgrading it, or anything. Uh, they made the statement that you know, if you you can do the get the Windows version and run it under Wine, um, or I guess you could probably just do a good one web base maybe. So that was uh that was their news for the Linux world, and I wonder how many Linux users use Picasa, if there's many. Yeah, many, I, you know, I I'm a big fan of Picasa on Windows, but on Linux I don't use it. I use uh, OpenShot or uh, FSpot, I think is the yeah. other one. Uh, yeah. So I don't I don't use Picasa on Linux, and I think that's sort of what Google was getting uh, into is you know we're we're putting all this, and there's no reason to. I, I made a comment recently in an argument with somebody about. Uh, Sugar Sync uh, was a, it's sort of like a Dropbox thing, and they don't have a Linux client. And he said to me, well, it runs under Wine. Wine is not a Linux client. I, I wish people would stop saying that. It runs under Linux? No. It runs under a bastardized version of Windows on top of Linux. That's not the same thing. Right. Right. All right. Yeah. Next thing, ePebble, a Linux smartwatch. I'm interested to hear about that, Seth. Uh, Sony announced that um, this product, it uses e-ink, and apparently you can go maybe a week between recharging, which is why a lot of the other smartwatches have filled out. But it has App Store, where you can get different apps for it, and you can integrate it with smartphones, uh, supposedly both Android and uh, the iPhones. And it's kind of cool. I guess, you know, you could use it... Um, the person who was uh, writing the review and talking about it talked about how he's always playing music through his uh, smartphone, but when he gets a call, it kind of messes up. You know, he's got to stop it and start it and all that, and he could just, like, kind of do that through the watch. So, you know, it's not quite Dick Tracy's smartwatch, but I guess maybe it's getting close. 
You know, I think this whole watch thing is is too little too late. I don't know anybody under 30 who still wears a watch. It, watches are for us old guys. Well, one thing I thought was, and I said this about uh, probably three or four years ago, when I, two or three years ago when I first got a, an Android phone, um, I said it would be cool if you had a watch, and I might wear a watch, because I don't wear one either, like you're saying, Mark, that was, but it was basically my notification bar from right. my Android phone, so I didn't have to reach in my pocket to pull it out and see what the message was, because I keep my phone in my pocket. I don't wear it on the clip. Keep it in my pocket. Sometimes it's not convenient to grab it out or whatever. And man, just be able to glance down and look at the notification bar and see, you know, the subject line of an email or a text message or the time because I use my phone as a watch. Uh, Wait, you awesome. do what? <laughs> yeah, so that would be cool. Uh, just a Bluetooth connected display on your wrist. That yeah. would be handy. Yeah, it would be very yeah. cool. Now, I don't know if that's what this is supposed to be doing. Well, I'm sure that's one of, you know, because it, it has like an app store. So I'm sure that the apps that are out there now, yeah, who knows? You do a digital calculator. And, yeah. you know, some type of tic-tac-toe with people passing by or something. I, I once don't Google know. Uh, gets the whole glasses thing, the glass project going, uh, I think nobody will wear watches anymore. You know, and we'll we'll all be have the the Google glasses. It'll be like that Star Trek episode where we're all walking around going, what level are you on? Yeah. <laughs> but the the uh, the notification bar on a on a especially with the e ink that that would be great. I would I would buy would if be. they had that that would just give me my notification bar, allow me to do a quick reply. You know, like maybe like a pre-programmed you know, like, yes no yeah, running yes, five minutes no, late. Talk to you later. Give me a call back. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I mean I would do that. You need to start a Kickstarter project for that. I would okay. I would vote for it. Donate to it. Awesome. Okay. And the next one, I, and I think we're going to cut the uh, Linux news uh, a little short because we've got other content, but this is a cool one. Linus Torvalds, the, the the creator of Linux, despite what um, uh, Stallman would have you believe, Linus actually invented Linux. Just a quick soapbox moment there. Um, heard Stallman in an interview recently say, I had almost everything I needed for uh, an operating system, but the kernel. That's sort of like saying I had everything I needed for a go-kart, but the engine. I had wheels in a frame. I was ready to go, just didn't have that pesky engine. Had everything I needed for the computer, but the microprocessor. Right. So Linus is the guy who actually made Linux possible and, and who still does it. And he is going to win what essentially is the tech world's version of the Nobel Prize, the Millennium Technology Prize. Millennium Technology Prize. Yes. Prize. Thank you. Sorry. And it couldn't help it. Of course, we're in the new millennium now, right? So right. Uh, I guess it doesn't count. The, the the previous millennium technology prize probably would have gone to the guy who invented the wheel. <laughs> That's funny. You know, but without the wheel, Full we wouldn't have been able. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So talk about that a little bit, Seth, the millennium prize. Well, it is... Um, like it is what you said, it's the closest thing to a Nobel Prize equivalent. It's awarded every two years from the University of Finland, but it's a worldwide thing. And the winners, there are actually two of them this year, they split over 1 million euros. So um, the other like guy did something or... on stem cells or something like that. <laughs> that's, now, see, that's how you know you're on a geek podcast. Lewis Torvalds and the other guy did something about stem cells. Yeah, so, uh, but you know, so Linux, you know, that's everyday Linux. He's uh, obviously getting worldwide acclaim and it's like a, it's a technology thing. It's not just computer programming or it's not just operating systems. It's technology, the entire field. And they thought that Linux was important enough to award him uh, the, uh, the, the technology equivalent, but the Millennium Technology Prize. Well, while I was glancing at the article, there was a sidebar, and I just have to read it to you. It's a title of a ZDNet article, and it says, Linux's Linus, Linus, everyone says his name, calls Apple's file system, quote, complete and utter crap, worse than Windows. <laughs> now, that's a slam. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a, that's an old article, though. So uh, yeah, I was just not Calling it work, uh, complete and utter crap wasn't bad enough. He then had to fl- worse, worse, de- worsely, worsely, more denigrate it by saying worse than Windows. <clears throat> All right. Further denigrate it. That's the word. Further. There you go. 
So <clears throat> moving right on to the topic at hand, we're going to kind of slam two things together tonight. We're going to talk about live CDs, and we're going to talk about VMs, two ways in which people uh, sort of try before you buy with Linux. Uh, but live CDs are often... Um, underestimated in their capacity. And we'll talk about that. And VMs, virtual machines, are often underestimated as well. You can actually uh, run entire server for farms virtually, which is you know what I do where I work and what a lot of people would do. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. First off, just a, a quick, I hope nobody listening to the show doesn't know what a live CD is or a live DVD or a live distro, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I'll, I'll just give you a quick definition. It's essentially a bootable operating system that you don't install it runs right off the cd and the first one i ever knew of was nopix i don't know if it was the first one but it's it the was, first one i ever knew of it was the first one in uh, 2000 i believe a fellow by the name of mark knopper took uh debian i believe it was linux and hacked it so that it ran entirely from a cd and uh and it was pretty darn cool and I've been, I have used uh, Nopix. I think a lot of people have used Nopix, but uh, other things have sort of replaced it now. But Nopix was the, the go-to um, uh, utility for, you know, the, the thing you wanted in your kit. Uh, it had all sorts of, of tools in it for uh, memory checking and hard drive checking and antivirus and that sort of stuff. Uh, so uh, anybody have anything else to say about Nopix? Well, it's definitely my go-to distro when it comes to needing to re recover stuff from a computer. Um, I download it every time there's a new version that comes out. Um, I actually keep a couple of the older versions so that way they run better. Uh, some of the older versions of Nopix run better on old hardware than the new versions of Nopix. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely the Swiss Army knife for recovering data out of a Windows machine or uh, testing the machine to see if there's any broken hardware to start with. Yeah, I remember the... The the whole Nopix thing when when it first came out the live CD thing it wasn't a try before you buy that wasn't the the idea the idea was to have a a stable secure platform that you can jump into when you need it and then other distros uh, jumped onto that and said hey we can use that to give people a taste of Linux uh, and that was um, that's sort of how most people know live CDs today almost all. I might even be safe in saying all, but at least almost all Linux distributions today come on a live CD or live DVD format where you can try it without making any changes to your to your system. And um, thank and God for one, it. Yeah. Another one that is a big uh, favorite among geeks is Backtrack Linux. Uh, yep. Chris, talk about that one. Backtrack Linux is a, for lack of a better term, it's a penetration tester's best friend. Um, it has all the different tools you'd need to test the security of a, of a corporate network or a computer for that matter. Um, it comes bundled with exploits that you can run through the network to try and break into different things. It also comes with tools to um, forensically pull data off of a computer as well. So it's not just a penetration testing tool, but it's also a um, forensics level testing tool as well. So if you need to recover data but not damage the original hard drive, um, backtrack and a few other CDs or what you want to look for. Yeah, and G Junkin in the chat room says it just had an update for a security flaw. No, it's going to happen. Anything's going to have security flaws, but it's kind of ironic when your security testing suite has a security <laughs> flaw in it. But why would you be running that all the time anyway? That's something you would just boot up and, and run once in a while. So I'm not sure that's a big deal, really. Well, I know a lot of people that run not, um, backtrack as their main distro. Um, because that's, you know, they're in the job of doing penetration testing all day long, every day. So instead of running off of the CD, they just put it all local and then just ran it as their main OS. And then one that we won't spend a lot of time on because we've already spent a lot of time on it before is Puppy Linux. Uh, I know that's my favorite and Seth's favorite uh, yes. live Linux distro. Uh, but almost all of these live systems can be installed as well. Nopix could uh, you could do you can install it to the hard drive and then it's not live anymore. It's running uh, actually on the hard drive. Uh, but Puppy is is my my go to lightweight um, distribution. Uh, I don't actually use it as a live distro often, but I do use it a lot for lightweight uses. One thing about Puppy is you actually have to hack it a little bit to run it as a non live CD. You know, it's whereas like with Ubuntu, it's one click install puppy. You have to do a little bit. It's not much, but 
It's like it's designed to be a live CD. Right. You're right. It doesn't want to be installed anywhere. You're right. Um, okay. So, uh, and the next one we'll just mention by name is D-Ban, also known as Derek's Boot and Nuke. And that is a single purpose uh, distribution that does one thing. It trashes a hard drive, completely securely erases it. Uh, and it's a, it's a great tool for doing just that. That's all it does. Boot it up. Type the yes, I'm sure on penalty of my mother-in-law moving in with me. I know what I want to do. Uh, and then once you, once you lock that in, your drive goes away. Yep. You can pave. Um, it's considered government grade wiping. Um, it, what it does is it wipes, it, it writes. I mean, it does it pretty good, but doesn't, but it takes, you gotta use four people to do it and charge too much. Yeah. It costs too much and it's slow. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> Well, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really, really slow. It's 20, it, it writes, I think the standard level of D-band is at 27, where it wipes a drive once, then writes ones to it, and then writes zeros to it, and then writes ones to it, and repeats and rinses until there's nothing left of the data on the drive. Um, yeah, that's that's what's known as the Gutmann method, also known as shaking voodoo sticks over it. There's no evidence that that actually does anything more than a couple of good rewrites, but people still stick with that one. Yeah, it's well. I use it a lot for just dumping a drive when I know it. I don't want anything on it without destroying the drive. Like if it's got a bad partitioning table, I'll run D-band because then I know it, it scrubs the table off. I don't use it for you know like scrubbing the data on a mission critical drive or whatever. Um, that take goes out to the the, sh- the shooting range and we shoot a bunch of holes in yeah. it usually. Yeah, anything I consider absolutely critical that the data not fall in anybody else's hands, the hammer comes into play. I don't trust anything electronic. Yep. Okay, so um, uh, moving on from that, uh, Seth found an article at darkduck.com. What a great name. uh, Called Six plus one ways to use Linux live CDs in your business. And I just wanted to run through this article. Uh, some of the things we've already talked about, some of them I think are a little stupid and we'll go from there. Uh, but the number one reason to use a live CD is to evaluate the features and compatibility of a new release. That's what most of us do. Uh, you know, if anybody who's tried Ubuntu, um, 12.04 yet, which is a beta two this week, officially, um, you probably did it in a live CD, maybe in a VM, but but probably in a live CD first. And that's a great way to do it. You find out if your hardware works. You find out if your network card is going to work, if your uh, sound card is going to work. And that's a great way to do it. Um, and the next thing on the Linux uh, on the, the list was test the security of your net, network using something like Backtrack Linux. Uh, and again, that's a good good way to go there. Uh, number three was perform one-off tasks like... I don't really understand what that is, but it said, do you want to plan an office party or invite a professional DJ to do your house mix? And I think that's kind of dumb. I don't understand that, that somebody explained that line to me. Well, what there are versions of Linux designed specifically for like audio. Oh, single tasks. Okay. Yes. Single task. So rather than, you know, get a general like windows, you could, make an argument is a great general OS and Linux is a great general OS, but they load them up with one specific task and you know, you don't need that all the time. So you make a, you make a distro, a live CD of it. So you can use the same computer to do a bunch of different tasks. So, yeah, I, I, I can sort of get behind that. The, the, the big issue there is if you're doing anything resource intensive because of the nature of the way live CDs run, they they use a they use a lot of RAM and they load slow because there's no file system they're they're extracting everything, so right. I, something like uh, video editing I would think a live CD is a terrible place to do that. But if you had it on a flash drive and your flash drive, you know maybe I don't know. All right, Just that's stretching it. it. Number three, stretching it. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, it gets worse. But uh, okay. and then the next one, secure your transactions. They t- talk about using something like uh, Slack, Linux, or whatever. But actually, this I think is a really good one. If you're going to like an internet cafe somewhere, um, don't trust their OS. Load your own. Uh, but also, I've heard people uh, espouse using live CDs for all your banking. Like, just keep a live CD. Uh, load it up, do all your banking transactions, and pop it out. If there are any viruses, there are there are any malware, anything like that. It can only exist in RAM. 
the odds of, of a hacker knowing when you're loading the the the, uh, the live CD and and um, and being able to infect you in some way is almost non-existent. Uh, so I think that's a really good if for the for the real tinfoil hats out there. Uh, loading up a live CD to do all your banking is probably a pretty good idea. Yeah, I agree with that. As would I. But generally, I just sort of look for the little HTTPS and go from there. Yeah, I never do it, <laughs> but I think it's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not that uh, paranoid. Uh, I don't have that much money. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they could take everything I own, and it would be enough to buy a couple of dozen Pop-Tarts. That would be about it. Um, well, you're a rich man. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Reminds me of, of uh, one time I was offering to buy somebody dinner uh in college so you know it's not like a uh a today where you take a business client out for dinner and spend a thousand dollars or something it was uh you know i'll buy you dinner i got 20 bucks and we're going to taco bell 20 bucks at taco bell makes you a pretty rich man yep yep so uh the the number five in the list impress your customers I think this is dumb, but I'm going to read it anyway. Basically, they say, hand a small business card size DVD to somebody, and when they put it in their computer, it loads up your custom OS that goes straight to your website, and it will be impressive. Will it? Really? Mm, no. I had a, <laughs> I had a friend who, this happen. is how he distributed his resumes. He had a, uh, his resume was done on a business card, and when he gave people his resume, there was one of those little business card CDs on it as well. And uh, I thought it was kind of cool. But, uh, you know, I think depending if you're like a programmer a, uh, or something. Q code. Yeah, give them a QR code or hand them a pen drive, hand them a flash drive. Then after they've erased their your your resume, they have something useful later. Right. Um, I, I think that's, yeah. Uh, you. How long does it take to boot a live CD? I mean, a couple of minutes at the fastest if you know, you're several lucky. minutes several minutes uh in the worst case and uh, somebody's really going to do that to uh to look at your you know website your company's website no I, I think that's dumb um and number six in the article was used for low maintenance computers and i do that uh fairly often uh if you want a kiosk situation where you just want to to load up a uh, like just a web browser station somewhere, uh, I have run uh, done that with Puppy Linux. It just it boots up, it goes straight to the browser. That's all it does, and then you shut it down when you're done, and it's a bulletproof OS. And that's a great way to do it, where you just want these unattended, single, or maybe just a couple of purpose computers. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Great commentary on that one, guys. Really. Well, what really else can you stuff. say? You hit everything on the head. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, we're we're not the best color man in the business for nothing. That's folks. right. Uh, and then number seven on their list of six is to save your data. And that is uh, what happens when your OS fails. And that's what we first started talking about. That's uh, uh, the indispensable tool in the technician's uh, tool bag is a live CD for recovering host systems or blanking uh, passwords that have been forgotten or something like that. Yeah. How many of you guys have moved from a live CD to the um, live USB sticks? Uh, I carry, that's, this is how much of a geek I am. I carry with me at all times three USB sticks, one of which is a live installation of Ubuntu with uh, all my tools on it. Another is a live installation of Spinrite so that I can repair hard drives. And a third is uh, just for general purpose data that also has a an installable version of Windows 7 on it. Uh -huh. Those are in my pocket at all times. I have a Windows 98 three and a half floppy in my computer box. Sweet. Nice. <laughs> uh, Jim in the chat room says, what are the size of the sticks you use? Uh, a two gig, a four gig, and a 32 gig. The 32 gig one was something I got uh, on special one day on Amazon, elmanopi.com slash Amazon. It was a 32 gig drive for 20 bucks. I snapped up a bunch of those. Wow, that is. Wow, a that's a good price. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy one from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've given and or sold them all now. I, have, I just carry one. Aww. So that's our, our look at live CDs. Uh, and then like unto them. Uh, are virtual machines where you can try before you buy, but in a much more uh, realistic fashion. 
And and we've talked about virtual machines a lot on the show, but it, it occurred to me as we were putting together the show that we've never talked about how to actually make one uh, and what you should do and how to load one up and, and how to overcome some of the things that, that might cause issues. So we're going to talk primarily about VirtualBox because it's really the only open source um, virtual machine system out there. There's Proxmox, but it's sort of a hypervisor and we're not going to get into that. But something you could load up on a desktop client. That's that's the rule here. It's not something you're going to put on a server to make it a dedicated machine, but something an app that you can run on your laptop. That was the the benchmark we were going from. Yep. Virtual uh, VirtualBox, VMware Server and Player. Uh, VMware Player is don't waste my time. VMware Server is great and it can run on a laptop. And Virtual PC from Microsoft, which we won't spend much time talking about at all because it's kind of crap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but primarily it'll be VirtualBox. And so we'll just start with um, some of the basics of a virtual machine. There's two uh, elements to any virtual machine. There's your virtual machine host and your virtual machine client. And the host is your laptop that you're running stuff on and the software that you're you're running. Yeah, your bare bare metal operating system, like probably Windows of some sort or any of the versions of Linux that you installed through this ED or through a USB stick. Right. On the machine that you're running right now. The client is what lives in the virtual hardware. Yep. So when it's sometimes you it's so I can be running Linux on a Windows machine. The host is Windows. The client is Linux. Whereas I do at work, I have a Linux host that runs lots of Windows clients. So uh, those are the, the two uh, things there. So uh, talk just a little bit about how to create it uh, in VirtualBox and VMware. They're both pretty much the same way. There's a, a, you know, a GUI. They've come so far in the last few years. It's all pointy clicky. You click a wizard interface that says, I want to make a new one. And it says, how big do you want your virtual hard drive to be? And you tell it. Uh, and there's two types of hard drives. There's there's fixed and then dynamic. Fixed is you can say, I want it to be 500 gigs. It allocates 500 gigs of data immediately. Or you can say dynamic up to 500 gigs. It starts out at zero. And then as you need more drive, it expands up to 500 gigs. Those tend to be a little slower because it's it's writing the file and uh, the virtual disk file as you go. Um, so on a server type performance, you generally don't get as good a performance uh, because you have to stretch that drive every time you write data to it. Uh, but the the on a laptop machine, I think that's the way to go. Typically, what I do is I'll say 100 gigs uh, and then generally never use more than five or ten. But I have that headroom there if I need it. Yeah. And that's usually what I do, unless this, unless the virtual machine that I'm creating is a, I have a, a a reason for the machine to be there, and I know it'll never gain more than X gigabytes of space. I'll make it a static drive because of the performance level. Um, I have one at work that I have virtualized that is a, uh, I can't remember what the tool is called, but it's a um, AD manager, and it's much better than the one that Windows gives you. And it runs through a, a browser interface, but I like to hit it from wherever I'm at. And because I know it'll never get any bigger than 10 gigabytes because it's the only program on the thing, then I wanted the extra speed bump. So I, I fixed yeah. that one. Now, one thing I have noticed uh, is, and, and this is this gets a little technical, but once you have stretched a drive, it doesn't get smaller. So let's say you drop five gigs of data onto a drive to a virtual disk and then delete it that virtual disk stays at five gigs so if i find a machine that is is uh uh, rather than this is probably stupid but rather than building a fixed size and limiting myself what i'll do is i'll build a, a dynamic size and then copy over like 10 three or four gig DVD images from, from Linux OSs just to stretch that thing at first and then delete them all. <laughs> so that way I've got like a 30 gig chunk that I can use that I can add data to and pull things out in, in near real time before it ever has to go out and, and stretch the thing any. That's one way to do it. I just never thought of doing that. That's a really interesting way of doing it, Mark. Yeah, that's my little clever hack. Like, as soon as I build it, like if I'm doing a, a web server thing like that, and I don't know how much data it's ever going to have, but I know it's going to have some at some point. I just throw a whole bunch of stuff on it, like right after I create it, expand that thing out, 
and then delete it back. And so then I've got like 30 or 40 gigs of usable space without it having to expand anything anymore. Um, and then how do you get your OS on it? Well, generally you're going to have to boot from a CD. Now, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can actually burn a CD or DVD, put it in your physical drive on your machine, point the virtual machine at that, and it'll boot up from that. Or the way I like to do it, and almost all the distributions let you do that, is point it at the ISO file. Why bother burning that and wasting the physical media when you can set up what's called a virtual thing? And you just tell the machine that um, this ISO is um, my CD. So it loads from that, and it does everything like it ordinarily would do from the install and all that sort of stuff, uh, but straight from the ISO without having to read off of a physical device. And it's also and faster to thing, do that way. It is, yeah. yes. Yeah, another thing you can do is you can also find the pre-made VMs that you can just kind of import. So, which... You know, you kind of defeats the process of learning how to do it. But if you just want to try something real fast and you don't want to go through the process of configuring it, you can find a um, you can find a pre-made where somebody's already made the VM and just pop it in there. Yes, yeah, so that was your tip last week or maybe two weeks ago, right? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I believe. Yes. Yeah. There's there are all sorts of pre-configured VMs out there uh, that are good for that. Um, so the next question is, how much RAM should you give a machine, uh, a virtual machine? And that depends on how your system manages it. For example, with virtual PC on Windows and virtual box on Windows, Linux, or I think there's a Mac version of that, uh, it uh, handles RAM in a linear fashion. So if you've got eight gigs of RAM on your laptop and you assign four gigs of RAM to two machines, you're out of RAM. You've, you've sucked it all up uh, because you've you got to leave some RAM for your, your actual host, for the OS you're running on, plus the two virtual machines. What I like about VMware Server and why I use that over VirtualBox, uh, even on my own uh, laptop, is it dynamically manages memory based on what it's got. So I can only have 8 gigs of RAM on my laptop, but I could have 600 gigs allocated to virtual machines. And it just takes what it's got and hands it out in the way that it has it. And it's very active about memory management. And uh, I think it really takes the cake in that regard. But if that's not the case, if that's not where you, what you're using, VMware Server Gym on the chat room is free. Uh, VMware ESX I is now free. They're, they're giving away almost all the stuff. It's not open, but it is free. Um, but you don't get some of the the like the management and the enterprise sort of stuff that you'd be interested in that's what you have to pay for so there's their hook um but so uh, you guys have anything to say about memory management no you pretty much nailed it mark um the only thing i ever do is i know i try to keep machines if i'm not using them off so that way the ram's free um but vm in general are ram eaters they will just you know, they'll take as much RAM as you give them and then much more. So um, be aware of that when you're setting up, especially VirtualBox, where you can easily, you know, write yourself out of RAM real quick, like. Yeah, and what happens, and I speak from experience, is your whole system just says, bye-bye, and you you get a blue screen or, or, you know, whatever the equivalent is, because you have just simply tried to allocate more RAM than you've got. And, uh, of course, you've got to leave some RAM for your own OS. So you can't say, I've got eight gigs, gigs in this laptop. I'll uh, uh, allocate four to two different machines, and that's good. That's eight gigs. No, your your own machine is going to need a gig or so. Yep. So, uh, well, and I don't think VirtualBox will let you allocate too much out anymore. I think they, they reserve some. So you can't blow your machine up, your your host. Yeah. Yeah, they they I I okay, I'll I'll take your word for that that they've gotten better at managing that. But uh the when I was a noob at it and I over allocated things, it just got a just bye bye message. That was pretty much all <laughs> I got. Was, your machine is crashing now. Hope you enjoy the ride. Um and uh, the same goes with uh, hard disk space. If you allocate more drive space than you've got, you just get disk errors, and that you know it just—it's not going to protect you from that. You—it expects you to not be stupid. So th that's just kind of the way it goes. It'll—it'll it'll start writing and say disk full, and that's the end of your life. 
And, well, you know, on another thing about hard drive allocation, it's a reason to go with the dynamic disk because when you do fixed disk, if you run out of hard drive space, it can be kind of hard. It can be quite an adventure to go in and add more space and then get that VM to recognize that there's more space and function again. And yes, if resizing uh, virtual disks can be a challenge. But not only that, but whether you're using it or not, you have used up that chunk of your physical hard drive. Right. So if you allocate 100 gigs to your virtual hard drive, that's 100 gigs you don't have on your physical hard drive. Yep. So you do that too many times. And even if you're not using it, if the machine is turned off or if it's only using 10 gigs of data, you, you're still allocating that much space. And so the next thing I want to talk about that can really be sort of a sticky wicket is um, um, setting up networking. Yeah. Uh, and and because there's there's three different modes that that I'm not sure about virtual PC. I think it does the three modes too. But there's there's uh, natting, in which case the uh, virtual machine gets an entirely separate range of IP addresses. That is, it's like setting up your own firewall at the virtual machine. There's bridged where your virtual machine gets an IP address on your physical network, but not your IP address of your host. <laughs> and then there's pass through where the client gets the same IP address as the host. So looking from the outside, looking in, in, uh, um, both NAT and pass-through mode, nobody sees your your um, clients. It's like they don't exist. In NAT mode, they're completely uh, obfuscated. And in pass-through mode, whatever your laptop, say that's what you're running on, whatever it gets, it passes it straight through to the other one. So if, if somebody, if you've got a web server running, somebody hits port 80 on your laptop, it's passed through to your um, virtual machine. And that can get really tricky with uh, services fighting over each other. Right. So what I almost always do is bridged. And in, in that case, the somebody on your network sees that your machine has two, lap, two IP addresses. And they, they behave entirely separately. But the downside there is that you have a machine, another machine on your network. So if, you're, if it's not secured, if you've got issues with it, uh, it's just the same as having plugged in another machine on your network. And if you're an idiot like I have been in the past and loading a server with a DHCP service turned on, <laughs> your virtual machine starts handing out DHCP addresses <laughs> all across your network. Cool. I mean, theoretically, if anybody were ever dumb enough to do that, surely that never happens. <laughs> surely. I'm sure it's surely. Happened, then don't call me Shirley. <laughs> You know, and I know that in Linux, this is not a big deal, but um, in licensing world, in business and corporate environments, most licenses treat a virtual machine as a separate machine. So, like, for example, if you were on a Windows machine and you were running a Windows virtual machine, you would need two licenses of your antivirus Absolutely. software or yeah. of your office software. And, and, and two licenses of Windows. You've got to have right. a license for that virtual installation as well. Yep. Right. So that's um, that's something that people don't think about because, you know, you have the mindset, but it's only one box and um, not to the bean counters. It's not. Right. Um, and uh, something I want to get to in just a little bit is uh, the, the number of cores or processors that you throw at a, at a VM because that's going to come into play in a minute. Uh, but first, I just want to uh, a little more into the network uh, networking. One of the cool things about NAT networking is you can have like five or six VMs running on your uh, machine all on their own network, communicating with each other, functioning as if they were behind a separate router that that nobody on your physical network ever sees. And that's a great way to test things like deploying images. Like if you want to set up a virtual fog server and a couple of virtual fog clients, they can do all their stuff right there in the virtual um, environment without ever interfering with anybody else, and they work at real-time speed across the their own little virtual network. So it's it's a really powerful thing if you don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also very good for uh, training purposes as well. When I was um, in my Microsoft boot camp, 
that was my classroom was I had a physical machine that had several guest virtual machines on it that was my network to learn on. So that's Absolutely. a that's a good reason to have virtual machines. Yeah, that's a good thing. So like you could set up a domain server uh, if you wanted and you can set up clients and you can test uh, all that sort of stuff all behind uh, your own little pretend firewall. Yep. Right. And with snapshotting, if you screw up, you just go back in time and you never screwed up. So. All right. Well, that's something we had mentioned. Talked about snapshotting. They all support it in some way or another. Right. Yeah. Snapshotting is it is an awesome way to do backup in the sense that it's, you know, we all remember like Polaroids or cameras or whatever. You take a snapshot and it's a picture of everything on that computer at the time. So you're like, I wonder what this program is going to do to this computer. So you load up a VM, you take a snapshot, you install that program, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was like a Trojan and, you know, you know now there's porn pop-ups all over your machine or whatever. So you like, you turn the machine off, you revert back to the snapshot, and it's like you never had, it's like you never made that mistake. So it's the ultimate in, you know, do-overs. Yeah, but also, at least in VMware land, I, I don't have much experience with this in VirtualBox, uh, but in VMware land, every snapshot, everything you do um, from that point on becomes dependent on the snapshots before it. So what it does is creates a bunch of uh, uh, small virtual disks inside your machine. At any point, you can roll back to where one of those were, but... If you're moving things around or, heaven forbid, you got the idea, like some tech directors who are, will remain nameless might think that they want to just delete some things to clean up their directories, bad things will happen. Because even if it's not the live one you're actually running on, it sort of forwards all those changes through it. So you've got to keep all of them healthy and in line. And from a, I have a lot of experience from like the Windows perspective and Hyper-V. Every one of those snapshots takes up that much more room on your hard drive. So it behooves you, there's a good word for you, to go through and you want to keep your snapshots to a minimum at the same time, maximizing your ability to roll back. So right. you don't want to take a snapshot every five minutes and think, well, I'm backing up because you're going you're gonna to go through terabytes of data in no time doing that. And so. there is a small performance hit because it has to aggregate those every time. Uh, something happens. Yeah, right. It's not big. There's a performance hit on doing anything virtually, uh, particularly on the uh, uh, the disk side, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. There are the there are issues when virtualizing things. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, when you're setting it up. How many cores do you give it? So, like on the laptop I'm on right now, it's an i7. So it's got four four cores. Essentially, the OS sees it as four processors. So when I set up a virtual machine, I can choose how many processors to give it. Uh, uh, generally, the desktop versions, like VirtualBox, will only let you assign two. Um, even though there's four in my machine, I can only assign two, or I can give it one. And that binds that to a particular core of your system. But like on my big machine at work, I have uh, four quad-core processors in that machine for a total of 16 cores. Um, but what, what I wanted to bring up was what Seth was talking about licensing. I have a particular uh, software that uh, requires uh, SQL Anywhere. Adaptive, adaptive SQL on it. Uh, and that license is by core, not by processor. So if I assign this thing to cores, even though I'm only using half of one processor, the licensing says that that's like two processors because in the virtual machine, it shows up as two processors. So even though I'm physically only assigning half of one processor, I have to pay a license as if I were giving it two full processors. So that's one of those things you have to watch out for because the OS doesn't know the difference. So the OS is going to be reporting back to its licensing system, whatever that might be. I have two servers or two two processors attached, even though you've really only given it half of one processor. Yep. Yeah. We, yeah that brings us back down to that licensing thing. You guys got to be really careful about your licensing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And yes. so, uh, <laughs> yes. Aaron, I just want to appreciate your uh, uh, say. I appreciate your commentary tonight. You've been really all over it. I know. I'm, I have been. Thanks. I just don't know much about. I haven't done much of it. I've used VM. 
Um, but I have actually never built a VM from scratch. So for me to jump in um, seems a little uh, silly. And I know we get a lot of information to get through, so I didn't want to no, totally just, unnecessarily. Just, just picking on you a little bit. Um, but I will say this. Okay. <laughs> now that you've opened the door, uh, and you've touched on this earlier, talking about not using a, a live CD to do video editing. Um, if If you are planning on using some VM stuff to do some stuff other than just testing out distros, just be aware that your mileage will definitely vary. You know, depending on what kind of application you're going to run, how processor intensive it is, all those kind of things. Um, you you may be able to run some things perfectly well in a VM, and other things may really, you may be able to run, you may have four processors, four cores, you know, so you got 16 cores, and be able to run 16 instances of application A on 16 different operating systems. And another application may really, really, really suck the juice, and you may not be able to do that. So, if it seems like it's running slowly because it doesn't have enough power, it's probably that right. fact. And and because you're running in a virtual disk, it's like uh, it's analogous to zipping and unzipping a file every time you want to make a change. So, yeah, your virtual disk is like a big zip file. So there is significant disk overhead when dealing with a virtual machine. The, uh, the processor overhead is is pretty minimal with the super processors we have now the ram overhead is pretty minimal the network overhead uh is is pretty minimal but the drive overhead is significant it's it's much slower than you think it should be when doing any sort of particularly multi-drive access like if you you wouldn't want to run a sql database uh, that does multiple reads and multiple writes per second off of uh, a virtual machine without doing a whole lot of of RAM queuing first, unless you were building it for your enemy. <laughs> right, right. Um, like I, I, uh, I attempted to run a VM as my primary storage early on at at work, just because I wanted to see how it worked. I had lots of machine, uh, lots of hard drive space, so I just allocated lots of hard drive space to it, and it didn't take long for eight hundred people pounding on that to tell me that was a bad idea <laughs> well at least you learned your lesson from it i did indeed learn my lesson um my lesson is don't use it for anything that is uh data intensive at all uh and so lastly the last little thing i want to uh bring up is how do you deal with some of the shortcomings some of the some of these problems like you know the the data thing i just uh mentioned uh, but also, how do you deal with um, like installing a thing? And this this comes from a listener uh, in the in the chat room and in the forums uh, from uh, G Duncan two twenty nine, who I believe is in the chat room at this very moment. And he asked the question, um, "What? Uh, how, how do you go over some uh, go over some of the poss- problems solutions?" Like uh, he says, "I find some distros that go into a fallback mode, and others that don't install at all in a virtual machine." Uh, and wh- what he's talking about is um, in VirtualBox specifically, the uh, early versions of the Unity interface in uh, Ubuntu didn't work because it depended on GNOME three. GNOME three requires. Uh, uh, 3D acceleration. VirtualBox at that point didn't have virtual acceleration, so it immediately fell back. So anybody loading up uh, Ubuntu Live CD to test drive uh, Unity didn't get it. They fell right back into a GNOME 2 interface. That That's something that's been fixed now. Yep. Um, but uh, there are sometimes other problems. And so I just thought, Chris, you've probably had some experience with this. What are some of the common problems you run into, and and how do you fix them? Uh, well, most of the problems I ever run into is because I was stupid when I was building the machine. And I forgot to tick a box. <laughs> uh, you know, like with the, the NAT firewalling and, and things like that. Th- those are the biggest ones I run into because I forget when I'm building those boxes. Um, the other thing with, I mean, if you're building a virtual box to test the 3D capabilities of, say, Unity or GNOME 3, uh, you're going to have a hard time, at least you before they had 3D acceleration set up. Um, I never had a, a distro that never installed. I always had no problems installing a distro into a virtual machine, so I'm not sure what G. Duncan was having a problem with. Can, uh, um, yeah, well, you're in the chat room, Duncan. 
Well, uh, here's your chance to ask a more specific question. Um, what what I have run into in the past is uh, setting up partitions, like if I didn't do that part right. But again, that's the same problem that I would have physical. Yep. Uh, I haven't haven't run anything anything particularly limiting in a virtual environment, other than like those hardware issues that that are being resolved. You mean Fedora was running the, the comment in the chat room was G um, G Duncan said that it was most like Fedora, but a lot was fallback. So I'm guessing that means that you were having a hard time running GNOME three, correct? Right. Give him a couple of seconds. That's what it sounds like, because either either of those distros are known. And that's just a case of the distributions moving faster than the virtual box. Yeah. Uh, and, and those have been fixed, as far as I know, in, in all the major systems. And G. Duncan, um, when I was, I just ran Fedora 16 in a, fire, in a virtual box Thursday. Uh, it installed fine. Um, I don't use Dome, so I wasn't able to do uh, Dome 3, so I don't know about that. But I know... KDE works like a champ, so maybe try KDE and see if it installs. And if it doesn't install, then we might need to, you know, punt that over to the the Fedora bug fixers and see what's going on. And another thing, y'all kind of uh, talked around it, but making sure you have the latest version of your virtual player right. or virtual yeah. box of choice, because there can be, you can go from 4.1 to point one one and the difference be night and day so right because yeah when you see that little blinking update box do it uh but uh and i'll say that uh, while i do like virtual box uh vmware server i think is more uh full featured and more mature and that's the one I recommend. Now, if you're just a, an all-out open-source zealot and you won't do anything that's not open-source, stick with VirtualBox. Uh, VMware Server is very much closed, uh, but it is free and, and doesn't cost anything, and it's the one that I like to use. Yeah, and Jim brings up a good point. I'm a VirtualBox guy myself, and Jim says that you have to bring it directly off the website. Sometimes the uh, if you're in um, Linux or and you get your pop-up in Windows saying there's an update, uh, those may not load up properly they, for some reason I always have a problem with those updates installing correctly so I actually have to go get the deb file or the the RPM or whatever extension you want to say um, it, directly from the website and have to load it by you know through that download versus the update yeah don't trust um, PPAs and repositories for that because that's whenever the maintainer gets around to them yep uh, definitely. And, and in Windows anyway, every time you run VirtualBox, it does a call home and tells you if there's something new. Uh, I'm not sure if it does that in Linux. It's been a while since I've used that one in Linux. So, um, yeah, you know, your mileage may vary there. See, I've actually thought about buying a copy of um, VMware Workstation, but the cost is just so high that I can't justify it right now. Because of the extra features right. that it has, but you know, for right now, all of the things I've ever done from VirtualBox, it, it's worked slick. I mean, there, there's been almost no his, issues at all. For you know, I, I dump virtual or I jump distributions probably more times I change my underwear. So <laughs> take that from me. It always comes back to you and your pants. <laughs> well, because you know they don't change underwear very often up there in Canada. So <laughs> it's not it depends saying. on how cold it is. Uh -huh. Uh, okay. Well, I think uh, I think that that's pretty much all we we're gonna do, and we're running a bit long, uh, so we'll just leave that at that. Uh, virtual machines are a good thing for learning and for practice, and I highly re recommend it. And if you have questions, you can do what uh, G Duncan did and post something in the forums, and we'll probably end up doing a whole show about it. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about the little contact information a little bit later on. Uh, Chris has decided not to give a command line tip this week because. He's lazy. Uh, so, Seth, <laughs> what is your end user tip this week? Well, you know, we talked about licensing agreements today, so I thought I would post a link where people could go and find some of the big licensing uh, that 
are used to govern a lot of Linux publications, such as the Apache license, um, the uh, GNU license, Mozilla public license. Um, there's a link to linuxlinks.com where you can go. And if you are so inclined to read them and see what the licensing agreements that people distribute distribute the software under, you know, here they are. Take a look and read them to your heart's content. And, you know, if you want to go crazy or something, I don't know. But And it does matter, uh, particularly if you're trying to, to build it. For, for a user, it matters less. For a developer, it matters a lot. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between the Apache 1.0 and the Apache 1.1 and the Apache 2.0 and a huge difference between GPL 1, 2, and 3. Right. And, yeah, I thought, you know, because everybody you hear people talk about them, there's always some controversy involving licensing. And so here you can read them and you can inform yourself. And uh, anyway, there it is uh, for the Linux nation, the everyday Linux nation to grow our Linux intelligence. <laughs> wow, that made it sound really smart and stuff. I, I try. <laughs> All right, so uh, I will encourage you to go to elementop.com. Be active in the forums if you're not. Uh, thank you for the show suggestions that have come in. Keep them coming. Because as we said earlier, our creativity ran out quite some time ago, and we're depending entirely on you to provide content for this show. This is a, a user-programmed content right here. So, so you can also find us on Facebook, uh, Element OP. Uh, you can find us on the Twitters and such. But basically, elementop.com is the place to go. And in the forum is the uh, the best way to contact us. Or you can just use that contact us link. If you're an email type person, you're just in love with emails, edl at elementop.com is our email address. And that will go to all three of us and we will all see it. And so uh, don't insult us individually. Make sure you do it collectively because we all see that email. And if you just want to give us a call, leave us a voicemail. That number is 559-IMOP. Uh, anywhere in the continental you know, not not necessarily anywhere in North America, the U.S. and Canada, the rest of the world. Google doesn't like you. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, we lost Aaron somewhere along the line, so I'll say goodbye on his behalf. And Chris, Seth, any other final words of wisdom? Go Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> Play with your VMs and have a great time. All right, and with that, I will say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. 